If you have a Bible, would you go to the book of Ruth, chapter 2? The book of Ruth, chapter 2. Now, if you weren't here last week, you need to know that we are in the middle of a series called Grit. It's going to last four weeks. We're going to get through the whole book of Ruth, and i got a lot of ground to cover today. So we're going to go. Somebody told me after the first service that I could have preached this sermon in six ways if I'd slow down. I'm not going to slow down because i got other things I want to say next week. So we're going to jump in to the book of Ruth. But I do need to apologize. If you were here first service last week, we got home from church, and my middle daughter, um, Carrie, was asking how it went because our youngest daughter was sick, and my middle daughter just simply said, Daddy said a bad word. So yeah, some of you were here for service. If you weren't, you missed it. So it didn't happen. We're not going to talk about it anymore. Um, For those that were, I do uh, apologize for that. So in this series, there's a couple things that I want you to know about, and I want you to start to grab onto and hopefully start to believe. The first is this, and and I hope I'm I'm inviting you to believe this, and I hope you will respond, but, but the invitation is this. I want you to believe that the majority of us, the majority of human beings, the majority of us in this room live the majority of our lives about half awake. Now, some of you are like less than that on Mondays, like it's bad. What I'm saying is not your physical awakeness. I'm talking about your spiritual, your emotional, your relational awakeness. I believe that in many ways we've become a culture that has the spiritual gift of giving up. And when any obstacle comes in our life, when any boundary, when any challenge, we kind of just go, I'm tired. I can't even right now. And I want you to believe that that's not how we were meant to live, that we are actually meant to be wide awake. And the second part of this that I'm inviting you to is over the course of these four weeks, over this series, to start to engage in that, to start to let something within you burn, this fire of grit. And I believe every human being has this. I believe every single human being, regardless of where you stand spiritually, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, a Buddhist, an atheist, a Muslim, wherever you fall, whether you're just confused, Like, I believe we have grit within us that comes to life at times when we let it. But I also want to say this. For the Christ follower, you have, like, grit to the exponential power because when you trusted Jesus, when you asked Jesus to be a part of your life, he brought something to reality in you called the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit wants to fuel something in you that you've never imagined, that you've never dreamed of, that will help you overcome any obstacle with the confidence that we just sang that song about. No amens. Okay, so I got some work to do today. So to review week one, here's what I said to you first of all, that when you're hopeless, hopelessness is the perfect setting for hope to break in. That's the perfect place. When you are at your lowest, when you're at your most broken, that hope might be the thing that comes next. And because of that, grit is a gift that will not ever happen in easy circumstances. No one develops grit when life is easy and you're sitting on a beach having someone fan you and feed you grapes. Nobody gets grittier there, all right? So God is not in heaven going, man, how do I make life easy for all these people? I'm really worried because they're having a hard day and I'd like to make life easy. God does not function that way just as much as God doesn't function by saying, I'd like to screw up all their lives. It is a wrong assumption to think at any end of that. But I will say to you, when life happens in hard ways, that's where grit starts to develop. So... The challenge is to embrace the suck. That's what I said last week. And yes, I apologize for that, but I'm going to say it again. So embrace that. Embrace when those things are bad because the invitation is that that may be the place where grit starts to come to life. So today, I want to continue this conversation about grit by actually defining for you what I'm talking about and then telling you exactly where it shows up in our lives. So Ruth 2 is where we're going to be, but let me just recap Ruth 1. The book of Ruth is named... 
Uh, yeah, well done. Stay awake. Come on. Come with me. All right. There are two key characters in the book of Ruth. The first is a woman named Naomi. Now, Naomi is the central character, and it's a little confusing because they named the book Ruth, but Naomi is the most important character in this book. Ruth is actually her daughter-in-law. You see, Naomi is a Jewish woman who, with her husband and her two sons, they experienced a famine in Israel, and they left Israel to go to enemy territory in this country called Moab. It's about 30 miles away. And they lived there. The, the, the husband died. Naomi became a widow. And both of the sons married Moabite women. And then both of the sons died. This is a terrible family experience for Naomi. And so at the end of Ruth 1, she looks to her new daughters-in-law and she says, you need to stay here. You are Moabite women. For you to go back to Israel with me will mean that you will be enemies, you will be peasants. I have no way of providing for you. There's no way I can care for you. You just need to stay here and take care of yourselves. I will go suffer alone. But we know that grit dies in isolation. And so Ruth, the one daughter-in-law, the first daughter-in-law, Orpah says, that's fine. I'm going to stay here. That's logical. Ruth looks at her in Ruth chapter 1. She says this, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. We said that grit gives up self for the sake of the other. And so as Ruth claims these words for Naomi, she says, there's nothing you can do. I will be with you. I'm here and I'm not going anywhere, which we said last week were two of the most comforting phrases that you could ever offer to someone. Look at verse 22 of chapter one. This is where chapter one ends. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, I know none of you care about the barley harvest or the barley season, but I'm going to tell you today why you should, because this is super, super critical. We didn't talk about this last week, but it's really important. For the Israelite people, they broke their year down into two seasons. You had the rainy season and you had... The dry season, and that's the way that it broke down. We call that Pittsburgh. When we lived there, it was the rainy season, and it was the not-so-rainy season. The rainy season was, was, was what happened, and then as the barley harvest was beginning, it was coming out of the rainy season. Now, I love this because for Naomi, after surviving the famine, after watching her husbands and sons die, after returning to Bethlehem empty and bitter, the author of Ruth is suggesting that what is happening physically in the world may also start to be happening happening in Naomi, that her rainy season might be coming to an end. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So this author is introducing now a third key character. You have Naomi, the main character. You have Ruth, her daughter-in-law. Both of them are widowed. Both of them are now poor. Both of them are suffering. Both of them are trying to figure out how to survive. Now you have a counter character in this guy named Boaz who is related to Naomi's husband, and he's a man of good standing, which literally meant that he was a mighty warrior. He had good character. He was well-known. He was a relative. This is another twist in the story. Look at verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, she entered a field, and she began to glean. Now you can highlight that word, underline that word. That's not a word we use very often here. But she began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, 
She was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, let me just pause, because if that word glean sounds confusing to you, it's because we don't use that word. We don't understand what's going on here. For the Israelite people, they actually had a set of laws. They actually had a systematic understanding that for the peasants, for the widows, for the foreigners who were living among them, there was a set of laws that would help to take care of them in the best way possible. They were called the gleaning laws. Deuteronomy 24 is one place where we see these. Look at verse 19. You don't have to turn there. We'll have it on the screen. But it says this. This was God's law. This is the book that you try to read the Bible through and your dreams go to die because it's so boring. It's all laws. Here's what it says. Verse 19. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, Do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. Do you notice the repetition? And then God says in verse 22, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I command you to do this. See, these gleaning laws said... You're an agricultural society. You people with property and harvest and wealth, you're going to harvest your crops. But as you go over them, the things that you drop, the things that you miss, the grapes, the olives, the sheaves of grain, whatever it is, leave those and let the peasants come along and gather them, glean them, pick them up. These were laws set up, some of you are not going to like this, to create a basic system of human welfare. God tells the people, let your things that fall to the side provide for those who need them. And they need to go to the most vulnerable people in your country, in your culture, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. By the way, the immigrant, the fatherless, the widow. This is the biblical command God gives. These are the gleaning laws. It was the best they had. Now, understand this. Like our broken systems today in our society, they didn't always work well, much like our foster care system, much like our welfare system. It was the best they could do, but it wasn't necessarily working well. And the reasons that it might not work well is because when you take poor widowed women and you put them in a field next to all the hardworking farming men, suddenly there are threats to these women. Abuse could have taken place. They could have been vulnerable. They could have been disadvantaged, but it was the best they had. Now, I love how this set of verses ends in Ruth because here's what it said. Read it again. As it turned out, you can underline that. Ruth was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, the way the writer writes this, we might picture God in heaven going, oh, that's amazing. Ruth was in Moab, and now she's desperate in Israel. She just happened to be in Boaz's field. I think the writer is using some irony, right? Because this book doesn't mention God that often, but God is always at work. As it turned out, we could say this, there are no coincidences ever in the kingdom of God. So here's what happens. Boaz arrives to his field for that day. He greets the harvesters working there. He looks around, and now watch this. He notices Ruth. Are you with me? He noticed Ruth. Some of you not with me. See, some of you guys, you thought this was a Braveheart story after the first scene. The second scene, the ladies are like, no, this is a chick flick. Here we go. He noticed Ruth. He saw her in the field, and he says, who's that woman? And his field boss tells him, she's the Moabite who had come to this community with Naomi, tells her her whole, tells him his whole story. And this sets up the beginning of this incredible interaction, this incredible relationship. Listen, next week is like R-rated, okay? So you got to come. You got to bring your kids, send them downstairs, but you got to come. Because this is the beginning of an incredible relationship and an interaction between Boaz, who just so happened to be Naomi's husband's relative, 
and Ruth, who just so happened to arrive in Bethlehem at the time of the harvest, and Ruth, who just so happened to come and pick up harvest waste in Boaz's field. Look at verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told them, the men, not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? I hope you see the power of this story. I hope you feel the magnitude of what is happening here. This hopeless Moabite immigrant who has no connection to anyone in Israel except a woman who has basically paralyzed with depression and shut down. She has nothing. And she's working in the field, picking up the scraps of other people to barely get by. And it's in this moment where she's picking up the scraps in this season where where hopelessness has come to rest on her that she meets someone who says to her, I will give you safety. And see, this is the place where grit starts to pay off. It's the start of a second wind for Ruth, a place where hope starts to break in. Boaz says, stay here and work. I'm gonna make sure you're safe. I'm gonna give you water. And her response is so simple. And by the way, what our response should be to God in his gift of grace to us, why should you notice me? Why should you notice me? Why should you pay attention to me? I wanna show you something today that sociologists talk about. They talk about this thing called the norm of reciprocity. And the norm of reciprocity is this cultural understanding that they say most human cultures, most human societies have that when someone gives us a gift, most of us as humans feel this this norm, this assumption, this sense of, well, I should give a gift in return. Even if it's a thank you card, I should give this in response to you. That when I open this gift and, and I look, and I'm not going to show you the gift, but I, I look at this gift, it's going to drive some of you crazy, but I look at this gift and I go, oh, this is a good gift, and I feel the need to respond and to return the gift to you. There's this norm. And if you don't reciprocate, if you don't act on that, that many cultures actually you will be subjected, whether it's externally from the society, the tribe, the clan, or internally from yourself, you will face your own embarrassment, your own shame, your own guilt, your own sense of, I should have done this, and I didn't. Now, here's what has happened, sociologists will say, with this norm of reciprocity. When you study cultures that have this, and you look at their religions, it has permeated their beliefs in God or the gods. And they actually treat, if you look at their tabernacles, their temples, their sanctuaries, their churches, they actually begin to treat theologically their God in this way and say, well, if I act well towards God, if I bring the right sacrifice to God, if I follow the right laws of God, then God will surely return favor on me. Have you ever treated God this way? See, the first service said no, too. You didn't say anything, so that's a no. Did you ever pray when you walked into that test you forgot to study for? Now we all get it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. God, if you'll get me through this test, then I will give you everything. I'll go be a missionary in South America. Not really, but just get me through this test. It's this norm of reciprocity that deeply affects our theology that says, well, maybe we can negotiate with God. Maybe we can actually give ourselves to God or things to God, and God will take care of us. The problem with this is that grace screws the whole thing up. If it wasn't grace, this is why I believe Christianity is different than every other religion because every other religion says you got to attempt to get to God and grace says, no, God's going to come to you. 
Grace takes this out of the picture. Ruth shows us something different. See, when people read about the gleaning laws, they go, well, the farmer worked so hard. The farmer produced his crops. The farmer deserves what he gets, and everybody else should have to work hard too. The problem with that is the farmer never stared at the ground and went, grow. I'm going to make you grow. God did that. God sent the water. God sent the sun. God made things emerge and develop and grow. See, God gifts the farmer as much as he gifts the person with the leftovers of the farmer. That's grace. That's how God works. And I want to say to you today as we continue in this story of Ruth, an understanding of grace is essential for active grit. It is imperative for you to understand grit that you understand grace. Look at verse 11 of Ruth 2. Boaz replied, because she said, why, why would you notice me? Boaz said, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and you came to live with a people you didn't know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That is such a beautiful statement that Boaz offers. He says, you have come to find refuge, peace, sanctuary, safety under the wings of God. Ruth has actually done something. She's demonstrated her character. She's demonstrated her hard work. We'll talk about this in a few minutes. She has shown herself faithful. But Boaz doesn't come to her and say, oh, you've worked so hard. You just deserve this. He says, no, I know you, and I'm going to offer this to you. I'm going to give you this gift because your grit has proven your character. So don't miss this. Ruth asks, why have I found such favor? And Boaz doesn't tell her about all the hours she spent. He tells her about her character. He talks about her identity and how the refuge that he provides is not for an employee for the honor she's receiving by admitting her need for work in their fields. He says, it's your identity that makes me want to pour out grace, not your performance. So this day for Ruth continues, and I don't know what it was like or how many people were there. I wish I could see. I wish I could picture it, but, but here's what happened. Boaz, who notices Ruth, can't stop noticing her, and so I don't know if it was lunchtime or coffee time or tea time or beer time. I don't know what they were drinking, eating, what they were doing, but Boaz says to his harvesters, he, he says, we're eating. He says, Ruth, come over here and eat with us. Now understand, this is unheard of revolutionary behavior for Boaz. He's a wealthy landowner who is inviting a widowed peasant foreign immigrant woman to his table. He says, come and sit and eat with us. And then Ruth eats, and then this is awesome. I, I think she was brilliant. She stands up and she goes back to work. She goes back to work in the fields. And here's how the story ends. Look at verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. Can you believe a whole ephah? You don't even know what that is, do you? I don't either. I had to look it up. It's 30 pounds. After one day, he had provided all this extra for her, and she has this, this great harvest to take home. She had been invited to the table of Boaz. She had gone back to work, and now she goes home. And look at verse 19. When she walks in the door, her hopeless mother-in-law, it says this. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Because blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. She said, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she replied. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. 
He's not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. And then she added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now you can write that down, take notes, underline it, highlight it. Guardian hyphen redeemers. It's an amazing word we're not gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about next week. The word I wanna hit today is kindness because this word is just as amazing. I want you to understand the twist that this verse brings into this story. This is a story full of twists that you don't see if you don't do the research and the study behind it. And it's going to blow your mind. Ready? 85 verses total in the book of, the, uh, book of Ruth. I know. I'm a Bible nerd. I counted them. 85 verses total. Halfway between 0 and 85 is what? Anybody know off the top of your head, math majors? 42 and a half. I figured that out on a calculator. Okay. 42 and a half would be the very middle point of the book of Ruth. Chapter one has 22 verses. Chapter two has 23 verses. Guess what the 42nd verse is? You're looking at it. This is the 42nd verse. This is the very core epicenter of the book of Ruth. It is verse, or chapter two, verse 20. And it says this, he has not stopped showing, the very central word in the book of Ruth, kindness to the living and the dead. This is the very epicenter of the book. Now, understand, kindness is not a good word to translate here. It's an okay word. It's not the best word. Because in English, when it looks at Hebrew, we don't have a word that matches this. It's kind of like we use the word love, right? Like, I love tacos. I love my wife. Which do you love more? Uh, I love my wife. We don't have words that depict that. The Hebrew people had this incredible word that was the word hased. Everybody say hased. And the word has said there's no English equivalent because it's so loaded with meaning. It's a word that defines things like love and faithfulness and loving kindness and loyalty and mercy and goodness and covenant commitment. There's no word that we have to describe that in one word. But it's a word that is based on something relational. You cannot have said a taco. It doesn't work. And I know your puppy's cuter than mine, but you can't hased a puppy. You can only hased a human being who is relationally committed to you. You can't even hased a human being that you just met last week. But you don't understand. I love him so much. What's his last name? I don't know. Well, you can't hased him. It is a deeply rooted love and faithfulness and commitment to someone that is deeply relational. Now, here's the other part of this word. The word has said often, most often reflects a faithfulness, kindness, loving kindness, gentleness, goodness, covenant loyalty to someone who is situationally weaker than you are. This is a love for someone who is weak. Two-thirds of the time that the word has said is used in Scripture, it is in reference to God. One-third, it is in reference to a human extending love to another human. I would say this. If you want to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ to your friends, if you want to share the gospel of Jesus to someone, this is the word you need to know. How, well, tell me about Jesus. Has said. What does that mean? Has said. I don't have a word. It just means he loves you when you were weak and he brought you to himself. Now read this verse again. I want you to see this because this is the other twist. This is super cool. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. The twist is a question. Are you ready? Who's the him? Who is his? She says, the Lord bless him. That's clearly talking about Boaz. Ruth says, I worked in the field of Boaz. She said, Lord bless him. Then she said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness. Who's she talking about? Some of you would go, well, Boaz. I'm not so sure, because look at the New Revised Standard version of this scripture. Here's what she said. Blessed be he by the Lord, whose kindness, his hased, 
has not forsaken the living and the dead. I don't know the answer, but I have a hunch that Naomi was standing there going, man, Boaz, be blessed. But God has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She's redirecting the work of God and the action of Ruth to say, God is in this. There's grit here. There's something going on. So this is what I want you to grab onto today. Here's this, this, this incredible tension. Some of you are here and you go, well, I feel like I've got grit. I just need to know how to live it out. That, this is for you. Some of you are here and you go, I don't even know where grit happens. I don't know how to be gritty. I don't know how to, to, to persevere. I don't know how to keep living with passion. One writer defines grit simply as this unique combination of passion and perseverance. Some of you are going, I don't have either one of those. I don't know how to do that. I'm going to tell you where grit happens right now, okay? Grit happens at this weird, strange, unique intersection of God's presence and our practices. There's this place where where God's presence in your life brings something to life in you that you didn't know was there, and yet there's also this place where the way that you live your life, the practices, the disciplines, the rhythms, brings this grit to life, and without both of those things, for the Christ follower, without both of those things happening, you will not experience the fullness of the grit of the Holy Spirit that we are offered. So let me break those down really quickly. The presence of God is the first thing. The presence of God is not contingent on you. It happens whether you're aware of it or not. God makes it rain. I've told people before, don't pray for no rain on your wedding day because some other farmer is praying for rain on your wedding day. Let God be God. There is a work of God, and life happens in seasons. The scriptures tell us that. Ecclesiastes 3, we could go through this. There's a time for everything. In a season for every activity under the heavens. Yes, this was a 60s song, but it was a Bible verse first. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build. We could keep going. There are these seasons. There are things that you are not and will not ever be in control of, no matter how hard you try. God is at work because there are seasons to life, but God's power is in every single season of your life. That's who God is. That's why we sing songs like, I'll praise you in the storm. That's why even today, as they've lost everything in this hurricane, there are people worshiping Jesus at this very moment. That's what's taking place. Because the presence of God is not contingent on us. And where we see God's presence and God's seasonal work is often in two places. Number one, pivotal circumstances. And number two, providential relationships. Here's what I mean by that. God's presence will show up in these circumstances. Some of them are good. Some of you have been through situations where you go, oh, God was so good. He blessed us. He richly blessed us. He showed us things about himself. He provided in ways that we didn't see coming. And that's our favorite place as Americans, isn't it? Don't we love when the blessings pour out? That's why Joel Osteen sells millions of books. Because we love that. But I wish there was a preacher on TV who was saying, you know what, God didn't become less God when your pivotal circumstances became bad. God is still God. God is still growing something in you. God is still providential. God is still working. God is still on the throne. God is not surprised by your negative circumstances, your broken circumstances. When you're in the crushing place, God is not any less God. These are all pivotal circumstances. And in the midst of that, we have providential relationships. You want to see someone come to Jesus? You want to see a friend come to Jesus? Look for these two things. When your friends who don't know Christ are walking through pivotal circumstances or or they are interacting with relationships that are meaningful and growing something in them, they are more open to the gospel than you might ever imagine. This is God's presence. For Ruth, she's in a pivotal circumstance. She's in a broken place. 
And yet there's a providential relationship that she just so happened to be in the field of Boaz. But then there's this tension with grit, right? Because it's the presence of God, not contingent on us. But then there's also the practices of us. This is why the word discipleship is not rooted in the word vacation. Amen? That was a joke. Some of you will get that later. The word discipleship is rooted in the word discipline. Because we have to repeat things. We have to study the scriptures. We have to pray. We have to commit. We have to go deep. No one is gritty who goes, oh, it's just a little uncomfortable, so I quit. It's discipline. It's growth. It's commitment. So Ruth sits down. I love this moment, right? She's a beggar. She's a peasant, and she's invited to the table of the guy who owns the field, and she's like, this food's pretty good. I'm going to get back to my job now. I'm going to get back where I'm going because grit demands initiative and it demands industry. I told you last week, grit will call you to move. You cannot stay where you are if God is not showing up and expect God to suddenly come in. It takes work. It takes practice. It takes discipline. The, the, the uh, Army West Point, do you understand they get 14,000 students as juniors in high school who begin the application process? 14,000. And over the course of who they're going to accept, they narrow those 14,000 down to about 1,200 by the time they're actually ready to enter. And they do it through a process that they call the whole candidate score. So they look at their SAT tests. Ooh, not so good for me. They look at their level of exercise and fitness and activity. They look at their leadership ability. They interview them. They take into account all these things, and they combine it to create a whole candidate score. Here's the fascinating part. Over the course of those people getting uh, uh, accepted, in the first year, they go through what they call Beast Week. It's as fun as it sounds, okay? It's seven weeks from five in the morning till 10 at night where they wake up, they exercise, they go to class, they do nonstop, they get to break for meals, that's it. And then they get recreational sports, <laughs> which sounds really fun when you got up at five and you just wanna sit down. They do this for seven weeks and the dropout rate is incredible. It's incredible. One in five end up dropping out. Now here's the fascinating thing to me. There's a sociologist that studied this and took into account the whole candidate scores, and they found the whole candidate score didn't even come close to predicting who would succeed and who would maintain and who would get through. It was a failure. What they found was that this, this definition of grit as the combination of passion and perseverance, didn't matter how your SAT scores were. Didn't matter how much weight you could lift. It mattered whether you were gritty. It mattered whether you had this, this passion to keep going, this perseverance, this initiative, this industry to say, I got knocked down. Yeah, it hurt. I'm going to get back up. Knock me down again. I'm going to stick with this. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep going. And that's what Ruth carried out. She took the initiative. She took the industry. The second thing is she persevered in spite of position. When she sat down at that table, listen, she had every ability there because Boaz noticed her. She could have been like, yeah, can we just, can we maybe like go back to your place and get some of your food? Because this field food is not so good. Now that you've invited me to your table, I've got a position. Can we go somewhere else? She got up. She persevered in spite of the position. Friends, don't miss the power of humility and bringing grit to your life. Don't miss what humility might mean and what it might offer to you. See, here's my question today as we start to wind down. Ruth is walking around this field, and I think she's picking, she's collecting, she's collecting scraps. You know what I found when it comes to our culture and gift giving? Nobody opens the gift and then goes, oh my gosh, you gave me amazing tissue paper. You ever had anybody get really excited? Oh, this tissue paper is perfect. 
just what I've always wanted. I know my kids tore it when they, when they went into it. It's Christmas and everything's all over and like our house is trashed. We thought Christmas was fun. It's really terrible. Like what? Nobody gets excited over scraps. But can I tell you something about Ruth? The farmers, as they were harvesting and they were dropping their scraps and they were taking in the good stuff and they were leaving behind the wasted stuff, the stuff that didn't look that good, the stuff that they didn't want, the stuff that they didn't think they needed. Ruth found grace in the scraps. Ruth found a deeper experience of God's presence in the brokenness. She found a deeper meaning, a deeper purpose, a deeper provision and protection in the scraps. If she had bypassed the scraps, she never would have encountered God. Friends, can I just tell you, I know there's brokenness in your life. I know there's things that that threaten the grit right? You're gritty. You're like, I, you go out of here. I'm going to be gritty. And then Monday happens. <laughs> I don't want to be gritty anymore. I just want to be loved, <laughs> right? Let's go get coffee and hang out. Like, I don't see the walls come up and it decimates us. It tears us down and it makes scraps in our life, right? It breaks, it, 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 it destroys things. And this is what our life looks like. And nobody's excited about this. My life is broken. This is so cool. But see, when grit picks up the scraps and says, God, this is, I know you've given me a gift. I know you've invited me to your field. This is all I have. God, this is, this is about the best that I got left. You can have what's left of my life, but it's all I got. Then God takes the scraps and he makes this incredible thing called the Christian life. He takes what's broken in you and he makes this incredible thing called the Christian life, the life that follows Jesus. See, grit brings us to a deeper experience of God's grace than we might ever have imagined. Now, here's the good news that I'm gonna close with today. Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem and it says that he wept. It says that he prayed this prayer, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. See, Boaz speaks the words of refuge. You've taken refuge under God's shadow that Jesus would pray so many centuries later. Psalm 57, the writer cries out, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Friends, can I just deconstruct something with you as we close? If you have this conception of God, because I know whatever church you grew up in or whatever that mean pastor told you or whatever you heard from me at some point, God is not angry at you. Your role in life is not to appease the gods of the universe. God is not angry. It's not about what you owe God or what you you think you might owe God because you can never repay what God has offered. It is about rather placing yourself under the identity, under the safety, under the protection of God's wings. God is not a judge coming in to condemn you. He's not coming to read the law to you. He's actually coming in as an eagle to pick you up and help you soar. But the presence of God in your life is contingent on God's presence and our practices. And so Ephesians 2 tells us this is the gospel. This is the good news. It says, for it's by grace you've been saved, comma, through faith. See, listen, grace is a free gift. I have a free gift. Who wants it? 
That's what we do, right? My daughter, I think, raised, did you raise your hand? You came really close. It's a free gift, but here's the thing. Many of us are looking at a free gift, and we never come and take it. We never come and take it. We think all we've got is the scraps. It's a free gift. It's a gift of grace, but it's faith. So Ruth goes to the field and receives the gift. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the hope of Jesus. The story of Ruth is the story of Jesus. And as the band comes, I'm going to give you a chance to respond. I'm going to give you a chance today to say, you know what? I have not taken this gift. And so as I always do, if you're here, listen, first of all, if you're here and you would say, I'm not a Christian, it is my first Sunday. Maybe I've been here for a while. I've been exploring this. I know the words, but I know that I have not crossed this line of faith. I've not asked Jesus to be a part of my life. When I pray, I'm gonna ask everybody as they bow their heads, if that's you, to just keep looking at me, just to make eye contact, because I simply want to affirm for you today that the love of God is in this place, and he sees that. He sees your heart. And today might be the day that you take the gift. And then I also want to say, for those of you that are here that would say, I am a Christ follower, but I got nothing left but scraps. We, as your church community and family, are going to hold you up, and we're going to pray that you have the courage to pick up a scrap today and just offer it on the altar to God and say, this is all I got. But maybe you can make something beautiful out of it. So are you ready? Let's pray together. And if you are first time saying, I need to follow Christ, just keep looking at me. Amen.